Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More um, importantly, I have the pleasure today of welcoming back to the podcast, Dr. Patrick Olivelle, who is Professor Emeritus at the University of Texas at Austin and a former president of the American Oriental Society and a prolific uh, and significant contributor to the field of Indian religions broadly. Uh, we will be... Um, Focusing our conversation today on uh, the third, um, the third volume of collected essays of his, um, uh, recently published by Primus, called "Reading Texts and Narrating History." Patrick, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Raj. So, um, tell us a bit about perhaps the impetus behind um, this collected volume and, and perhaps its relationship, or make mention of the previous two. Yeah, the previous ones were <clears throat> published quite quite many years ago, 2006 and 2007. So this is, uh, oh, how many, 15 years or so later. Uh, <clears throat> so it contains the my publications of the last, oh, maybe 15 years or so. Uh, <clears throat> it, um, it covers a wider range of subjects and topics than my first two volumes. The first two volumes covered a period when I was really a young man, (laughs) which is a long time ago. Um, My my interests have gradually developed, changed, I'd say. Uh, And I had a wider repertoire of uh, material, uh, texts with which I have worked. Uh, which were not represented in the first two volumes. Uh, the three areas which I have worked on the last oh, 20 years or so were, of course, the Dharma Shastras, which I had been working on it even earlier than that. But after that, I became more closely interested in Kautilya's Artha Shastra, which I translated. And when you translate a text, you get you 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 have an intimacy with the text that you don't when you just read a text uh and so that's and then uh, another book that i worked on uh by translating it first and then working on material within it was ashwagosha's uh, buddha charita and his his repertoire of work so those are the three areas from which i have drawn for many of the papers that are included in the volume, uh, either they are directly connected to these three areas or they are, have been inspired by that. Um, for example, my the very first article, first paper I have is on the medical profession in ancient India, a topic which I had no interest in <laughs> in the early part of my career, but became interested in that because medical professionals 
play a significant role uh, in Kautilya's Arthashastra because people who are medical professionals of some sort uh, were important for both the military aspects of a king as well as uh, his animals. You know, elephants and horses were the mainstay of the army uh, of Kautilya and they had to have veterinarians. So vets and uh, and uh, and doctors or medical professionals, uh, th there is no distinction in terms of terminology. So they have the same terms, the chikitsaka that is being called. So I became interested in that. And then of course, went on to uh, looking at these terms in the, in the medical text, uh, the charaka and the shushruta sanghitas. And that's how that particular paper came into being. I was also asked by Professor Preissendans of, of uh, Vienna to write uh, for a journal that is the European Journal of Ayurveda or Indian Medicine. Uh, so that's how. So in a sense, this, this is sort of the intellectual milieu in which I worked for this book, as opposed to the older ones, which were of a different period of my life here. Yeah. Uh, a, a number of points, um, just uh, off the top of my head. One, um, uh, you know that one is productive, indeed prolific, when one has two volumes of collected essays published, and then 15 years go by, and then <laughs> there's, there's enough for a third volume in which there, there are no less than 28 uh, contributions. Uh, so... We have to say a word about your, your your process and your productivity. We'll put a pin in that. I'll, I'll plot that into the GPS for the ride today. Uh, secondly, um, uh, it's interesting to say when you were a young man, I'm at an age where I'm in my 40s. So for undergrads, I'm old without question. <laughs> and then... And then, uh, then, 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 from from those uh, of, of your age group, I'm a young man, <laughs> so it's all relative, I suppose. Certainly, yes, yes. Uh, uh, I was uh, the chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Indiana University when you were born. <laughs> that puts into perspective. <laughs> yes, that, that reminds me of things I'd say to folks who were born in in you know in the year that I graduated high school or or, right. or you know you know wa watching a classic uh, movie over the holidays such as Home Alone and the, you know the whole problem is there because they don't have smartphones they can't they can't <laughs> contact their kid who's home it's a whole different world um, anyhow there are a number of things that I want to touch on you, you know let's let's talk about this what's your process like how I mean you're extraordinary extraordinarily productive. I mean, I'm, I've been told that I'm no slouch myself, but nevertheless, I mean, what is your process like? What does that look like? Is there a particular regimen? Is there a particular time of day or time of year that you produce? Or could you tell us a bit about the process, if you don't mind? Well, I don't know. I don't have any particular uh, uh, secret to what I'm doing. Uh, I try to work every day, including weekends. And uh, and uh, I tried to have maybe two or three projects going on at the same time. And there are some projects that can be done on the fly while I'm in the airport, in a plane, watching news on TV. I can still type away. Uh, that does not require the kind of 
intellectual engagement and focus that other would, if I'm translating, I require a lot more attention and a lot more things around me, dictionaries and books and all that. But when I'm doing a critical edition, I'm transcribing manuscripts and doing all of that is a sort of a very mechanical thing, which can be done anywhere. So I'm trying to have many things going at the same time where I can, when I have quality time uh, here in my, where I'm seated right now, uh, I will be able to um, work on the more, more intense uh, things that require focus. And when I'm somewhere else, uh, in my office in the university when I was not yet retired, I could work for half an hour here, two hours there, or one hour there, and then then fill those things. So I've been working like that. So I've, there's no nothing very special about it. The range of topics that I cover here, uh, to a degree, it is dictated by my interest. To a degree, it depends on somebody asked me to give a talk or write a paper, and there's a there's a topic there. Um, I'm asked to work on on justice, for example, that paper on justice here, that I was asked to come to Erfurt. They're having this international conference on the ideas of justice. So I, I had to work it up in a sense. It was not something that I would have done if I was not invited. Uh, uh, I was asked to work for a workshop at the CSDS in Delhi, uh, Professor Rajiv Bhargavan, was working at the time on, on uh, ends of man, the goals of human beings in various religions and various cultures. And that's where I came up with this thing on, on the Trivarga or the, or the Purushartha uh, in, in India, uh, which had been misrepresented for a long time. The, the problem I find is many people who deal with these things often do not go back to the sources and look at them closely, uh, comparatively, diachronically, uh, in the original language, rather than in some translated thing. So that's, uh, that's I think, uh, something that I try to do. And, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's worth remembering that language is made up of words, right? It's a, it's a, it's a simple thing, but we often forget. And words are like archaeological artifacts. Uh, and when you plumb their depth, you find you can write a history, just like you can have, write a history through looking at pottery, different kinds of pottery. Uh, how the, how, when I talked to you last time, we talked about the term grasta, right? I think we did, right? right. And, and you find that the word is not there before about the third century, right? So then you ask, what happened, right? Then you, so you have an archeological uh, uh, sort of a discovery using the archeology span of texts rather than, than realia. So I think, I think that's what I have been trying to do in many of, the, of my works, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's, you've touched on, a, you've touched on a, a question that was gonna ask, but you've already opened that door, which is great, which is, to flesh out and uh, elucidate your core methodology, because so much of your findings are, are clearly um, there. Um, the correlates or evolutes of this particular methodology that you're so masterful at, which 
you would describe as um, looking at words, perhaps, <laughs> realizing that language is comprised of words, examining words, comparing their usages over time. And, you know, I suppose it's summed up well in the, in the, in the name of this, in this collection, Reading Texts and Narrating History. But in your own words, say a bit more about the method that you've adopted, perhaps how it's been altered or changed or enhanced or clarified over the years, and perhaps even say a word about where that fits in, you know, the trajectory of scholarship over the last few decades. Yeah. So um, I use the term philology. Uh, I used it in in my, my a paper here that I wrote on mining, uh, you know, mines for metallurgy. Uh, philology has got a bad name today, right? In fact, I cite their uh, author who published a paper who said philology is dead. Nobody talks about philology anymore. Uh, Shelley Pollock has written on this quite a lot. Um, if philology is dead, then the whole enterprise of reading ancient texts is also dead. Philology ultimately is the close reading of texts. And I tell my students, if you don't have any respect for the people you study, then you can, then you can uh, talk about them without bothering to listen to them. I'm sorry, there is a phone going in the background. <laughs> um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that uh, if, if, you, if I'm respecting my sources, the people from the way back 2000 years ago talking to me, then I have the obligation to understand what they're saying. To understand what they're saying, I have to know, I have to know their language. I cannot be like, a modern anthropologist or ethnographer who goes to the field without, with no knowledge of the language in which people are talking. So he has to have an interpreter and the interpreter may or may not be translating exactly what is being said. I have to have the respect to understand what my interlocutors, what the people in the past are telling me. So I have to learn the language to learn the language in a way that I can understand what they are saying. That is philology. Philology is the, is the serious engagement with language and the language in which ancient peoples wrote and what they have written that we today read and understand. So I think that is the first thing. And what helped me quite by accidentally. I mean, many things in my life have been accidents, uh, good accidents, but never does accidents, is that when I first started doing my PhD, uh, I don't know why, I did for my PhD a critical edition and a translation. That set me on the path to deep engagement with texts and to know that texts are not given. So for example, a text is written 500 AD, right? 1,500 years ago. We don't have that person's 
uh, autograph. Right? What we have is what has been repeatedly uh, transcribed by people over and over and over again. So in a sense, the critical edition is trying to find out through, the, through taking away many of the draws, many of the mistakes, to come as close to as possible. You can never go back to the original, close to as possible, the original text, right? Which means uh, that you are seeing the history of a text, which is as important as going to the origin. Uh, just like a child born, has the, the birth is important. But birth is not the only event in that person's life. It continues into old age. Just like a text, when it is written and then thrown into the world, it becomes, it has a life of its own. It is being read, interpreted, transcribed, rewritten, commented on, thought about. All that is the life of a text. And it is, I think, the work with the manuscripts that are the only things we have with regard to the text that gives us this, this life of the text, I think. Which means that you are, you are getting very closely engaged with the text. When you translate it, then every word counts, every sentence counts. So we are trying to understand what the original says and then to reproduce it in this new target language, which is always a difficult thing. Like Italians used to say, traditori sono traditori. So uh, translators are traitors. Yes, it's always a, there's a certain amount of being traitor because you cannot exactly reproduce what is in there. Uh, this is especially true of a poetic work like the Buddha Charita, right? Less so in a legal work like Manu's code, it's, it's much easier to translate that. So I think it is this, this is, what I'm trying to say is that this early training of mine uh, gave me a sort of way of engaging with the past. Uh, in I think, hopefully a responsible way. Uh, and, and, and I'm glad that I'm, I've been able to produce editions and translations that could be used by others who may not be as equipped or as uh, having the mental trained. Uh, uh, training and also, you know, aptitude. It, it, is a, it is a boring thing. As I said, I'm, I'm working when I'm in an airport, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's sometimes the boring thing. And people, a lot of people don't like that. They like to go to the flash. So I hope that I can, uh, my, my work uh, in these areas have will open up uh, some of the texts for further study. Oh, well, there's no question about it uh, in, that they have without question. I mean, uh, there are many... Uh... There are many a specialist in in another subfield of Indian religions, um, such as myself, who uh, derive um, a great deal of support from the works that you produce. Um, so yes, you do you do that heavy lifting for 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 many scholars throughout the field, and and probably for those engaging the text for generations to come. But also, your um, your particular scholarly mo evidences the utility in your case of philology for other findings 
the, the things that you stumble upon while while sort of while, while sitting there and doing the bot work as it were the computing right. you stumble upon things and so so do you want to say a little bit about that perhaps yes uh, for example i've been working on the dharma shastra text right for a long time one real problem with all the ancient indian texts especially the dharma shastra is chronology you know when were they written if a text was written in the second century after christ or third century before christ that's 500 years uh, that's twice the length of Canada and, <laughs> and America's existence, right? <laughs> that, that's a long period of time. And when we deal with ancient Indian texts, they say, oh, it's maybe between 500 BC and, and 280, 700 years. How can you make history if you look at a text that is written within a period of 700 years, right? That's not possible. So, uh, but there were no there were no external criteria for dating these texts and you say that okay so there was i was working on something quite different and was working on this on this uh professor malamud's uh fresh script uh, he was retiring and uh, college de france in paris had this big conference. I was giving a paper on that. And I was working on this. And I was looking at the term division, right? A twice born, which is a very common term that is used. Any any introduction to Indian religion says that, right? Throughout the Puranas. <laughs> huh? Yes. Throughout the Puranas, for example. Yes. it's it's uh, And we have, I took it all my life, to be there from the very beginning. It's something that's, you know, common Indian. And I found that before the Dharma Sutra of Gautama, probably the second or maybe even the first century, the word is absent in the Sanskrit vocabulary or in the Indian vocabulary, division. Uh, even in, in the Dharma Sutra of Apastamba, which is prior to the Gautama, the word is not used. So, I was able then to say, okay, whenever the word divija arises in a text, it must be post second century. And even a stronger sort of dating that you find is Patanjali's, his Mahabhashya on Panini, enormous treasury of Indian culture, right? Because he gives examples over and over again for Sanskrit rules of grammar, examples taken from ordinary language. And the word divija doesn't occur at all in that whole big text. So it's very clear that the term divija started at a particular time in Indian history. So we may, there's at least a marker there that we can use to decide. So this is one small example that if you do language or word excavation, uh, one may be able to come up with unforeseen uh, uh, discoveries uh, with regard to uh, the chronology of text, uh, which we can say very clearly that the Mahabharata is clearly post second, first century before Christ, because Divija, Divijottama, Divija Sattama, that's 
everywhere, almost in every on every page, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, how is the how is the volume structured? So there are three sections, and perhaps we can say. I mean, I, I can't convey to the audience. I mean, many of my colleagues listening probably. Um, already have procured a copy or will soon or their university libraries have but there is an extraordinary breadth of of topics that's covered in this collected work and it's divided into three overarching um sections part one is uh called history and material culture do you want to say a word or two about the types of studies we find here maybe make mention of a couple of the highlights yeah so when i say material culture here, uh, well, the, the, the three parts are sort of post-factum constructions, as you can see, right? It's not something that I had in mind when I was writing these things, but I had these 28 and I was trying to see how can I uh, make sense of what I have here. And I talked with my good friend and former student, Donald Davis here, and, uh, and we actually moved around some of these things from one side to the other. When I say material culture, I mean something that is that that are could be called realia, that we are dealing with real things, uh, medicine and medical professionals, uh, long distance trade in goods, uh, elephants. Uh, uh, I have this little thing on showbiz, which came from also from Arthur Shastra. You know how. How, how the entertainment industry in ancient India worked. Those sort of the material culture uh, that I'm dealing with. Uh, and, um, and the second part deals with law and society, which is mostly dealing with legal matters, such as courts, uh, such as judges, uh, and uh, uh, war and peace, um, the, the various ways in which statecraft functioned in ancient India and, and stuff like that. And the final one, which is sort of a catch-all thing, which is uh, religion and culture, and I deal with things that are more closely related to the religious culture of ancient India, where I have this thing on, uh, on the Trivarga and Purusharta, and something that you know Don Davis liked, the, the one thing on fame, uh, which is a topic that has not received attention uh, of scholars, uh, the importance of, of the idea of fame, which comes principally in ancient times from the warrior tradition, you, your fight for your fame, right? Uh, the uh, infamy is worse than death kind of thing. So those are the things that I have in the, in the, in the last one. Uh, the last one is the, least focused first to our little more focused i think uh and uh yeah the, whatever i could not put in the first two i put in the third <laughs> mm. um don davis has actually uh of course been on the podcast and he he wrote uh, a quite useful introduction i would say right uh, to, yeah. he's very good at writing introductions I think, uh, if as I recall correctly, there's a there's a line uh, either here or elsewhere where you say that he's essentially um, refined the art of writing introductions. Right. 
<laughs> I would be I would be inclined to agree actually. Um, um, there's there's so many. So earlier you mentioned that your interests had changed uh, over the years. Tell us a bit about that, and perhaps you can fold in a little text called the Arthashastra. <laughs> yeah, little text. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. The, the my intellectual trajectory went from my early work in Oxford in the area of Buddhist monasticism. My first love was Buddhism. But from there, when I came to University of Pennsylvania, I, for a variety of reasons, I shifted my focus onto the Brahminical tradition from the Buddhist. But I maintained a focus on asceticism and the monastic culture. So my early work then, let's say for the first 10 years or so, from the mid-1970s to the mid-1980s, or even later, were mostly focused on ascetics and ascetic life. And that you can see in my, if you look at my CV, you see all of them around there. I find looking back rather a boring period of my life, I'm doing the same thing. And, but um, towards the end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s, especially I went after I left Bloomington, Indiana and came to University of Texas, uh, a change in scenery, change of people, uh, change in in people with whom I was talking, uh, I went more and more into Dharmashastra as such, into the legal literature. So that was my my turning point. Uh, and um, and there were other forays, uh, which are sometimes integrally connected to this, sometimes not. For example, uh, one of my last works on the Ascetic tradition was the translation of the Sannyasa Upanishads, which came around 1992. And because of that, Oxford, uh, the editor of the World's Classic Series in Oxford, asked me to translate the major Upanishads. I had no intention of doing that. I didn't know I was qualified to do that. I said no first, and she came back. Then I said, okay, I'll take the win. I take the December to do a pilot translation and I did it and became interested in it. So I ended up translating the Upanishads, which was rewarding and it, it came out well, uh, won an award also. And that was, I think, uh, uh, but I was not a Vedic specialist. So it was you no know, one small area there. Uh, but um, uh, more integral to my work was my passage into the Artha Shastra that happened in the 19, I mean, 2013, 2014, that, that period. Uh, it was mostly because one of my students, um, uh, Mark McLeish, did his PhD on the Artha Shastra, and I became naturally interested in it because I, I was working with him. And then I thought I, I should translate it because I didn't find Kangle's translation uh, very appealing. Um, uh, and uh, so that I got into it and uh, 
worked closely with uh, Professor uh, Wetzler, Albrecht Wetzler, who was a great German scholar, who is right now actually, you know, still alive, but, you know, can't, can't work very well. Uh, and uh, that's how I came into that. So, so it's, uh, it's, it's been a, uh, and again, going into back to Buddhism with Ashwagosha, I was asked by the Clay Sanskrit Library uh, to work on Ashwagosha's Buddha Charita. Somebody else was working on the Saundarananda. So I got interested in that and then spent about five years dealing with, with Ashwagosha. So, so that, yeah, they're a little eclectic, but there, there are connections here. Yeah. It seems that your 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 um in terms of interest your 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 sannyasa was earlier in your career. <laughs> Sorry, you're interested in sannyasa was earlier in your career. <laughs> What's it? Yes, right. Yeah, the first period of my trial rather than the last. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and now it's, you're doing it backwards. So now you're in I'm your, doing the back. householder phase. You're in the most productive right, phase yeah, now. Yeah. Excellent. Um. So a couple of things that you mentioned, and I mean, there's so many themes and there's, uh, we, we would have to have a five hour podcast, but let me touch on a couple of things you mentioned in passing. Um, one, why do you feel that philology, as you say, has a bad name these days? Would you say a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, th- I, 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 I don't know how it got a bad name. Um, I think it has something to do with the a modernist period um, uh, where where I think how 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 Indology got a bad name, for example, how the very term Oriental got a bad name, right? I mean, I see. Uh, it, it, it's so in a sense, the words get bad names the way it is used. If uh, if Orientalism. Uh, what's his name? Didn't write the book on on the Orientalism. Forget Robert his name. Said. Said. Uh, uh, maybe we'd still be using the term Oriental without any bad connotation, right? Um, so, so I, I think I think the 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 intellectual climate of the nineteen nineties two thousand had something to do with it. Uh, but my Problem is not so much the word. I mean, you can use different words. My problem is the enterprise, the reality of it, what is behind it, you know, that people become less interested in actually dealing with the original languages and dealing with it seriously because it requires work, it requires a lot of labor, uh, it is not always sexy. Um, uh, and uh, you will not be quoted in the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that is a, an issue. Uh, th- there was actually this guy from, what's his name, from Cambridge, who did this thing on, on Panini that came, might be the first time a Panini has come into the pages of BBC and New York Times, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, these are, uh, philology is a, is a is a is a difficult and 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 lonely enterprise, uh, and uh, but people. I mean, you look at a word. You know, uh, I get this thing every every uh, day. A word from what's his name now? I I, I terrible at names. Uh, from Seattle, the Indian uh, who who works in who was a computer scientist and now works in language. Uh, 
Uh, and here you get the whole story of a word, which is wonderful to read, right? It's great. It takes me five minutes to read it at the most or less, but the amount of work has, that has gone into producing that three-minute read, right? it's the excavation of the, of the origins of a, of a word. Uh, when we look at the OED, Oxford English Dictionary, take the word and you see all the things that where when it was first used, uh, how it, its meaning changed uh, from uh, 18th century to the 21st century. This this is all philology that gives us this 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 history of language, and uh, and without that, we won't be able to understand the 18th century use of language. If you use the 21st century meanings of those words, right? So so this is the the, the issue that that I think uh, is so important um, to understand and. And it is, a, it is a tough thing for that in the modern university. The universities are less and less inclined to deal with these kinds of areas. Even the University of London eliminated, eliminated its professorship in archaeology, classical archaeology. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tough intellectual environment for this kind of work. Uh, but I think it is uh, still important. Mm. Fascinating, field. fascinating. I I had the um I had invited um uh, uh um um Peter Bishop and Yuko Yokochi uh to do a joint podcast to showcase their um their you know painstaking and significant yeah. work creating a, a a critical edition of the Skanda Purana and uh, as 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 uh, as patchwork and sprawling as the Puranas are, the Skanda probably takes the cake in that regard. And so yes. this is important work. And it was it, it was important. I, I'd come across some some uh, some something that Peter Bishop wrote actually and I thought let me invite him on to to share with folks how important uh, enterprise of philology is, how significant it is in terms of um it's it's not really um it's it's podcast host uh raj that that folks here hear here it's not uh so much critical engagement conference questions pushback that's not the enterprise i mean in my own work i've been critical of historicist and philological uh looking to the puranas to though for those aims alone but uh it's it, it ought to be implied that of course narratology and philology go hand in hand how can one really function without the other i mean my own work seeks um uh synchronic strategies for engaging texts such as uh, the puranas the devi mahatmya the mahabharata uh, but of course they're diachronically produced and of course uh, you know the work that that folks like you do is is invaluable um, yeah, the, I mean, one has to be careful because I'm 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 never trying to downplay the importance that a text has for a contemporary audience. That's a really important point. That, I'm glad you touched that, on that. that. But but that does not mean that they did not have a, a historical reception. People three hundred years ago, seven hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, and when it was written. So one does not invalidate the others. This is, as I said, it's a life. You know, uh, your 20-year-old Raj Balkaran does not invalidate the 40-year-old and hopefully 
the 40-year-old will not be invalidated by the 80-year-old as I am today, right? So, mm. so this is the, mm. I, I, think, I think these are false choices. Uh, the, the importance, uh, one other thing is, when I say that the Upanishads, when it says X, means this, but people like Shankara and other people in the 20th century think that it means something different. These are not contradictory things. Well, that's that's the that's the power of of having this. Uh, one can't begin to study South Asia, in my view, or even the humanities, without being able to hold. Uh, uh, having multivalent thinking and being able to hold exactly. paradoxes. I mean, there's no, right. I mean, the, the, the luster of a gem is through the light hitting the different faces of it. And so now, I'm, I'm reading the Upanishads as a historian, as a textual scholar. Shankara is reading it as an theologian to find out some universally valid truths. But of course, Ramanuja's, I mean, uh, Shankara's interpretation of this is different from Ramanuja's. Right, or and that is different from someone else's third person. So, in a sense, the history of theology is a history of reinterpreting texts. These are all valid enterprises within their own domains. It becomes invalid when they say originally, historically, in the right. eighth century before Christ, it meant this. Yes, right? I'm not saying that the eighth century meaning is more important than the 21st uh, century in, years later. Those are value judgments we can't make. Those are different. That's all we can say. Mm. Yeah. Okay. The problem with translating then, what am I translating? I'm, am I translating an 8th century before Christ work? Or am I translating it through the eyes of Shankara in the 7th century after mm. Christ, 1,000 years later? Both can be done, but they will be they will give very different results. Brilliant perspective, and so part of what uh, I've been striving to do is to, uh, in my view, um, sort of supplement or alter a trajectory of uh, of scholarship on the Puranas that have looked at them solely for historicist or philological aims for, for mining for data, um, glossing over the, 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 the narrative power. Right. Uh, right. So, so, so I, they're both without question, um, vital aspects uh, of, of any text. Um, so I want to touch on, on one final tidbit that you mentioned in passing. And uh, as I said, with a, with a work as, uh, with a contribution as rich as this and a scholar season as yourself, we could easily fill three hours. I have no doubt of that. But I want to touch on this, this tantalizing idea that, that um, I would readily agree with, um, but I want to hear you say more about uh, uh, that, that uh, translating a text is more intimate and enterprise than interpreting a text. Say a bit about that and, and your own sort of experience translating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say not so much that it's different from interpreting. It is different from interpreting. But I think translating a text is a different enterprise than reading a text. Whether it is reading in the original or reading in the translation, some translation. Because I have read text in the original. When you are reading a text, 
you're trying to get a, a, a meaning out of it. What is this person trying to say? You don't pay as much attention to every word, every phrase, every expression. And what is more, you don't look at how a particular word is used by this author throughout his text. You are just reading one page at a time. When you're translating, you're, you're trying to translate a term and you want to be consistent because there is no one-to-one -one equivalent between a Sanskrit word and an English word. So you are trying to have a word that as closely approximates the original as possible. But your question is, what is the original? You can't go to a dictionary because dictionary will give you 10 different meanings. What I'm trying to do is to say, go and find out all the places where this author uses this term. Go to the context of each of those things. How is he using it? Is he using in two or three different words, ways or just one way? So there's a, you, you are sort of digging deeper into a text and therefore deeper into the way the text came out of the mind and the hand of the author in a way that when I'm reading it, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'd say when you're reading it, you are at the surface of the text. When you're translating it, you are at a deeper level, close to the mind of the author, close, but not, not there. Clearly, uh, we can't get into the mind of the author because it is mediated by the written word. But you are you are closer to it because you are you are you are you are looking at it as closely as possible. It's a, and the word that is being used, the close reading of text, the closest reading of a text is a translation. Beautiful. That's it. Yeah. Beautiful. Or it certainly a translation necessitates the closest reading and the image of um, uh, perhaps a somewhat crude but apt metaphor of uh, a cow chewing its cud or regurgitation requires digestion for something to be refined, right? Like for, in order to articulate it, there has to be some level, assuming, of course, the articulation is is um, is is similar or, or appropriate or commensurate with the original, then, then there has to be a digestion of it on some level. It, it has to be, and, and, and this is where, where the, the, the choice often, a literal and a, a literary translation uh, literal, I don't think there is a distinction between the two, because you cannot really have a literal translation. Translation is taking what you say in English and me saying the same thing as close to it as possible in Sinhalese, which is my own mother tongue, right? Those are the two ways that I'm doing it. Uh, literal will mean take one word and translate it, take another word and translate it. You, you won't get a real real meaning right out of it. So in a sense, that's why I have never used parenthetical. You know, you see in translations often in parentheses, right? What needs, because if you need a parenthesis, then you haven't understood the text or the text requires the parenthetical statement, then use it, right? Uh, you're, you're not trying to translate words or the grammar of Sanskrit into English. You cannot. Because the two grammars are different. The two syntaxes are different, right? Um, so yeah, uh, they, you, you have to translate uh, the meaning of the text rather than the words of the text. Uh, 
but the meaning is arrived at not by some kind of intuition, but by going deep into the words that construct a sentence. Yeah. A beautiful idea upon which to close our conversation for today. Thank you very much for reappearing on the podcast. Thank you, Raj, for you know inviting me a second time. Um, enjoy talking to you. Yes, it was it was uh, my pleasure, my pleasure, uh, and auspiciously, uh, this will be released in some time from now. But you are the first one of twenty twenty three. So, for those listening, um, we have been speaking with um, uh, uh, Dr. Patrick Olivell, a seminal figure um, in the field of Indian religions. Um, We've been speaking with him about this brand new Primus publication, Reading Texts and Narrating History, which is the third uh, collected uh, volume of, of, of his works. And it, it touches on so many, many things. Um, uh, uh, trade, science of elephants, uh, courts and criminal justice, penance and punishment, um, moral philosophy, talking animals, um, you name it. And you probably will find an article that, that touches on on phenomena. Um, so until next time, keep well, um, keep listening, and uh, keep contemplating the significance and the power of careful diachronic textual study. Take care. Thank you, Raj.